Amen. Good morning, church. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, today's scripture reading um, and, and teaching text is uh, 2 Tim- or 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 8. Um, and we'll read through chapter 3 and verse 7 um, of the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, um, while you're turning, um, I'm, I'm uh, excited to preach on a, a passage um, uh, it's it's a um, a clear passage, um, it, even though it, this passage has controversy around it. The controversy around this passage does not take away from the clarity. So I was really I, I was working hard. I want to be I want to be clear about the clarity of this passage, and was laboring on this um, quite a bit um, this week. And we hadn't gotten to this passage, we, we haven't arrived here yet, but I've been reading down through, and some of you have talked about it because you notice, oh, he's, he's going to preach on that, you know, and so that's coming up. And so some of you have said that. Um, but I really had the burden lifted off of me by one of our elementary school students, older elementary school students, who um, was involved in a conversation with an adult um, about this passage this week. That adult isn't a believer and um, the, the level of understanding and maturity that this young person had um, in gauging that conversation as well as just talking with her parents said, okay, it's God's word. Let's just let it do its work. And so hopefully, uh, you know, I can just do that this morning. Let God's word do its work and, um, and just let the clarity of the, the scriptures Um, stand for themselves. So follow along as I read for you, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2 and through verse 7 of chapter 3. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was first... Formed then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his, chil- keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. You know, as we um, consider the passage today, it's important that we are to remember not to add or to take away from Scripture. 
that we're not to add or to take away from from Scripture, that there is uh, um, a there, there's a sufficiency to um, to the text. How do we add to it? Well, there's a number of ways that we can. If if the Scripture is our baseline, there's a number of ways um, that we can add to it because we come with all kinds of different understanding to the text, and we have to allow the text to, to stand over us and to change the things that um, that we bring to the text so that the text causes us to see the world in a different way. Um, but sometimes um, we add to it, we add to it out of boredom. Um, we become too familiar with the text. Um, but we, what we have in front of us um, is something that is unequaled. Um, it's unequaled. Boredom is one of the ways that we can add to the text. Just think about what God's accomplishing in the whole text of Scripture in the Bible. His purpose to... Um, convey the redemption of the world um, is understood in the scripture, um, that people have believed this, this book from diverse cultures, speaking thousands of different languages over thousands of years. Have you ever thought about how incredible the message of the Bible, um, that it can be believed, that the gospel can be lived out? It can be lived out and believed from the most primitive to the most sophisticated cultures on the earth in Every age, that is an amazing thing. Not only that, but God determined to make the most important parts of the Bible comprehensible to small children and uneducated adults, and yet to be able to withstand the most rigorous pounding of academic literary, literary criticism. That's an amazing thing. Um, the Bible has taken and continues to take more critical um, more critical fire than any other history um, or any other book in history, but the ship will not sink. The Bible is unequaled. It's also audacious. You think about the text in front of you, it's, it's uh, audacious. Um, J.C. Ryle said this, if the Bible is not the word of, word of God inspired, the whole of Christendom for 2,000 years has been under an immense delusion. Half the human race has been cheated and deceived, and churches are monuments of folly. If the Bible, the Word of God, and is inspired, um, then all who refuse to believe it are in fearful danger. They are living on the brink of eternal misery. The Bible claims to be God's Word breathed out in 2 Timothy 3.16. Perfect. From Psalm 19, the, it's living and active, able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. You know, the climax of the written word is recorded in the teachings of Jesus when he is called the word incarnate. And the incarnate word claimed audaciously that he was the same word that was issued from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses and declared unequivocally that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. So take the, take the written word at its word. And take Jesus at his word. A reader, reader must either bow to Jesus as their creator and savior, the savior of all those who repent, or reject him as the most dangerous megalomaniac of all time. Either the Bible either Bible believers are deluded fools or Bible unbelievers are in terrible pearl. There's no middle ground at all. The only people who are lukewarm about the Bible are those who don't take it seriously. 
They may claim to take it seriously, but their inconsistent walk with Jesus, their inconsistent obedience concludes that it's boring. It's boring, but it is audacious. It's unrivaled. It's unrivaled. Um, It's unrivaled. John Piper says this, the particular glory of God in Scripture is reflected in his people. They are transformed from self-centered, self-exalting people to God-centered, Christ-exalting servants who live for the good of others. In this, they are like Christ, the perfect embodiment of the particular glory of love through lowliness. This change extends the self-authenticating evidence of the glory of God through the word into the character and good works of God's people. Thus, the people who are the most transformed by the word become evidences of the reality of the word. The story of the Bible is unrivaled. It's unrivaled in power. You think about it. It has the power to transform the murderous, the covetous, the sexually immoral, the pathologically um, selfish people into humble, self-sacrificing, servant-hearted lovers of God and other people. There's a reason Christians, more than any other group of people throughout history, have been on the forefront of aiding the poor, tending the sick, educating the masses, and standing against injustice. It's the Bible's teaching. It's the Bible's teaching. If you really want to change the world, do you want to change the world, or or maybe just the world around you, then history would teach you to take the Bible seriously and obey what it says. Obey what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, there are tragic, glaring, shameful, historical failures of Christians. But if you examine the larger, if you examine the larger, usually greed-driven cultural failures, like the African slave trade and repeated betrayals of Native American peoples, and who are, are you to find at the middle of those kinds of controversies? They are the few courageous people advocating for the rights and needs of the oppressed in times when it's most costly and oftentimes dangerous to do so. Is it it the fashionably liberal or fashionably religious people? Is it the atheists that are in the middle of those kinds of difficulties? No, it is not. History bears out that it is Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians because of the Bible's unparalleled power to move believers towards others' real and desperate need, even at the risk of their own lives. It is unrivaled. It's anything but boring. The Bible is the world's most amazing book. You can love it, you can believe it, or you can hate it and despise it, but you cannot deny its unequaled global influence, its audacious claims, its unrivaled power to beautifully transform lives. The Bible has achieved what no other book has ever been able to do, and it's the one that you hold in your hand. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. Are we bored with it? That plague of our finite, fallen, 
self-oriented flesh that so easily loses appreciation for the most precious treasure when we simply become too familiar. So we have to open this section and say, forgive us, Father, and hasten the day when we lose our amazing capacity for boredom and gain an amazing capacity for sustained amazement. If the Bible has grown boring to you, fight it. Remember what makes it marvelous and and marvel again at its words. Look at it. Take time to look. If it bores you, that's when you need to keep looking at it. Look deeper. Look until the particular glory begins to shine again, until you do not want to stop looking. For those who see the glory just can never, ever get to the bottom of it. So we add to the text sometimes because we become too familiar. But is anything but familiar? We add to the text sometimes because the text seems intolerant, and so we want to add tolerance to it. We sometimes add to the text because our emotions drive us, and we'll see from the text that while God gives us emotions, they are not the things that ought to drive us. Uh, Sometimes um, there are multiple options for understanding a text, or controversy is around a text. And so we think that, well, we can't understand the meaning of the text, truth can't be found, so I think, I, I think I'm going to just take what I want the text to mean. You know, we are in a text that is somewhat controversial, but the meaning is clear. Uh, the scripture is sufficient. You see, if we don't approach texts like this and look at the clear meaning of the text and understand, what, what we're doing is we're saying the Bible is insufficient, that we need the Bible plus something else. Right? And we do this in a number of different ways. But the Bible is sufficient. Greg Allison says this, Sufficiency is an attribute of Scripture whereby it proves, or, I'm sorry, whereby it provides everything that people need to be saved and everything that people need to please God fully. And so even as we start, I want you to, to ask yourself a question. Is this sufficient? Do you need something from culture to add to it? Or is it really, truly, as Greg Allison says, does it provide everything that we need to be saved and to please God fully? It's it's not going to tell you how to fix the carburetor of a 1950 Chevy. It's not its purpose, right? So we're not saying it contains all knowledge. But sufficiency says it's enough for us to know how to be saved and then how to live in light of the God who created us and redeemed us. That it is sufficient. That we need not add to it nor take away from it. So as we get into this passage of Scripture, it's important to keep that in mind. That we can understand the clarity of God's Word. That even though there's controversy, um, clarity is here and we can understand it. It is sufficient for what we need to be saved and for living a life that is fully pleasing to God. So here's where we're going. Let me give you the pathway this morning. 
Here's the pathway. We're going to look at verses 8 through the end of the chapter, chapter 2. And we're going to look that men are to lead through prayer and holiness. Men are to lead through prayer and holiness. So um, here, here's, here's where this is all driving. It's driving towards the instructions in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that God is forming a household. Um, he's doing that all through Scripture. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing a personal letter, a pastoral letter, to the pastor at the church of Ephesus, to Timothy. He's giving him instructions of how to put order in that household so that God might be glorified in that particular community. And so these are household instructions. He turned from addressing Timothy in chapter 1 to all the people in chapter 2, and specifically at the end of the chapter, to men and women. And so this is the pathway through to those household, those household um, orders, how to put order in the household. Men are to lead through prayer and holiness. Second, we're going to look at women are to learn godliness and good works. And then finally, men are to lead by teaching. Men are, qualified men are to lead by teaching. And that actually presses us into chapter 3, and we'll get there next week. But these sections are connected, right? So the, the chapter divisions in your Bible, Paul did not place in, when he was writing to Timothy. The verses are there just to help guide you, but it's all one continuous letter. And so I want to be able to, to look ahead and say, okay, this is connected to what comes next. And so we'll see that as we get to point number three. So let's look at the text. Um, first, men are to lead through prayer and holiness. And I would say, I would add to that, and not through certain things. So first, Paul addresses the, the males in the congregation. He says in verse eight, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay, so there is the issue of, of leadership here. He's addressing, he says, this is what I want to have happen in the congregation. That's um, the verses prior to this, that um, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings. And I want this to happen. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, that's the turn here. I, I desire in every place that men should pray. Men are leading in this um, they've, they've, we've, they've already been told in verse 1 to, to pray, but here he addresses men in particular, that the men in the church must pray, that they are to be marked by this. Um, we're going to get into how women should adorn themselves. Well, this is, it, 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 we, there's, there's a parallel to how women, there's a likewise that follows. Prayer is what men are to adorn themselves in. Right? It's the outward appearance for guys is not, I would say, as big of a deal as it is for women. I don't know why God created us like he created the rest of nature, right? I love, I, have, I feed the birds at my house. I feed the deer. I feed lots of children. <laughs> um, but I like to watch the birds out there, and I'm like, you know what, guys? We, we got shorted. Because, like, everything in nature, like, it's the male that, like, the pretty bird, right? The good-looking bird in, in nature, it's the male, you know? And the female is the one that's, like, disguised and blends in. And, but when it comes to us, 
we're the ugly ones. Right? So he doesn't have to talk about uh, adorning ourselves here. We're, you know, you came to church and you were like, yeah, that's good. I'm ready. You know, you did the sniff test. We're good. We're here. That's how it is. But that's what he's getting at. Like with men, it's, our, it's, it's men and women, it, it is our character. But here he says, this is, this is the idea. And this is that likewise that's later to follow. Likewise, women. So we can look back and we can say, well, what's the likewise? Well, men are to, to adorn themselves in prayer. Men are to lead out in prayer. If this is happening in the congregation, um, it's because men are doing this. As you see, um, why don't men pray? Why don't men pray? Let's think about this in the negative. I think the passage helps us do that because um, these things are looked at in this passage in both negativity and positivity. We'll see that repeating through through the passage. Why don't men pray? Um, to be to pray means to come under authority, right? To pray means to come under authority. To pray, men are to pray in acknowledging God's authority over them. They're to submit to God's authority in prayer. So prayer by nature is humbling. Prayer by nature is is humbling. It's possible, and the scriptures give us examples of men praying in pride, and they say, don't do that. In fact, um, Jesus painted the contrast um, to that. We don't have time to go there, but it's possible to pray religiously in pride, and the Bible says don't do that, but for the most part, a person's not going to, a man's not going to be consistent in prayer if he is a proud man. Why? Because prayer by its very nature is saying, I'm coming under the authority of God. I'm recognizing my dependence upon him. We need to confess our, our need. Um, men in general struggle with pride. We need to make it a practice and a priority um, to pray. See, prayerlessness is a sign of a lack of submission, a lack of submissive spirit that comes because of pride. This is important. The emphasis of this passage is moving into leadership. And here's the reality. So I believe, like, while this passage speaks in particular at the end of women, I believe that the press and the pressing on this passage is for men. That this passage is for men. It was for Timothy. It was for the church, right? So it is for everyone, but the emphasis here is men. If men don't pray, and if they're not marked by prayer, they're not coming under that authority of God. And men, if we don't learn to submit, and we are called to lead the church as elders, and we are called to lead our home as, as husbands and fathers, if we don't learn to submit to God in this way, we will not lead like Jesus in those areas, right? That's, that, that's, that's the issue. We got the issue out on the table. That frames this very thing, that, that God has created men and women in particular ways. And he's called men to submit themselves together to him. And they are, they are marked, they are adorned by prayer. It says that um, they are, men are to pray whenever the church assembles. So this is in the, the assembly. It says with, with uh, raised hands, to lift up holy hands, right? Um, so we have the image today of the, the lifted up hand, but it is the fist of rebellion 
And that's not how the church is to pray, but rather the church is to pray with lifted up with holy hands. It sounds like what Peter says in 1 Peter um, chapter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to lift up holy hands. He's saying that, that it's not the posture here. Um, it, it, there's other, some religions that say you can only pray bowing on your knees, bowing face down. And we have multiple postures in Scripture for prayer. Um, it's not giving a command. We make too much of the raised hand. And, and should we raise it? Sure. Yes, the Bible gives us permission. We, there's a posture in prayer that we can pray. It's a raising of, of hands to God, but it's raising of holy hands. And I think we need to emphasize the, more so the holiness over the, the posture here. That, we're, that men are to pursue holiness in all of life. Living obedience to the Lord in thought and word and deed. And when you sin against God, repenting, repenting sincerely, knowing that your prayers may be hindered if you should go on living in unrepentant sin. Peter, in, in writing in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, again, it's referring to how God has created men and the role that men are to follow, and they are to follow Jesus' kind of leadership, which is submitting to, what did Jesus do as a leader? He submitted to the will of the Father. He was the servant leader. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We have to talk about that more when we get to 1 Peter, but there it is. You study it for yourselves. If you're not living in a way that you are called to live as men, then God says, look, I'm not going to listen to your prayers. That's serious. That's serious stuff. Right? And, and so what God calls us to is to live a, a life of repentance. And a life of repentance is a life of holiness where we continue to recognize where we are and what we need from God and we move to God. We're to be men of prayer, lifting up holy hands. So um, we know that, that pride inhibits us, but there's also another expression uh, of pride, right? So we tend to think of pride and we tend to think of it um, as this outward thing, like I'm not going to pray because I think too much of myself, but pride can express itself in another way, which is simply passivity, passivity. And, and men, we are not to be outwardly prideful. If we, it, prayer will help us with that because we are submitting to God, but we have to be careful um, that we just don't say, ah, it doesn't really matter because Christians, Christian men especially, Christian men and women, but Christian men especially, must be graciously aggressive when it comes to how we live. How do I know this? Well, it, it's, it's here in the book. We, re, we read words like we are to be striving in Hebrews chapter 4. We are to be straining in Philippians 3. We are to live a life of self-denial in Luke chapter 9. We are to be fighting 1 Timothy 6, 12. Whatever it takes, 
says Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. Encourage from Psalm 27, verse 14, are not for our lips only. They are words of behavioral action that God has called us to. And they are words of grace, not works righteousness. We are called to be men that are striving, straining, denying, fighting, doing whatever it takes to be courageous, not passive. What is it that you want in life, men? What's your ambition? I say to you, for God's sake, be ambitious. Be ambitious for God's sake. Avoid selfish ambition like you avoid hell. That's what James tells us in James chapter 3. But like Paul, he made his ambition to reach the unreached. So make Christ's kingdom and his holy call on your great and holy and make his holy call on your life, that great and holy call, that life-consuming call. Make that your ambition. Make it your ambition in the church he's placed you in, in the people he's called you to love, in the work he's given your hands to do, and the sin he's called you to overcome, and the weakness he's allowed you to struggle with, and the adversity he's called you to strive against, and the suffering he's called you to endure. For God's sake, be ambitious. Don't be passive. That's what he's saying here when he calls men to prayer, that we're to lead in prayer. And he says that we're to put away anger and quarreling, anger and quarreling. Of course, men are to put away all sin, but he points this out in particular. Um, When he addresses men, he's going to point things out that are particular to men. He addresses women, he's going to point things out that are particular to women. Anger here might be translated wrath. I desire in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or quarreling. Um, so there's, there's this anger, um, wrath, um, but there's also this quarreling, this, this idea of fighting. And God has forbidden wrath or anger that has burned out of control. Quarreling is wrath or anger that's out of control. Both of these um, lack self-control, this anger or quarreling. Both are driven by passion. Now, we've been given passions, but they are to move in the right direction. They're, they're to be guided by God's word. Um, they are not to be out of control. That's what James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If we're to live a life of holiness, men, we must learn to control our passions. If internet search results are an indication of our passions, our passions are out of control. Passions are emotions that are overflowing their proper bounds. And we must learn by God's grace and his work to control our sinful passions. We must develop self-control. We must be governed, submitted to the word of God and driven by his word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4, 14 and 15, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As he called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, 
faith, love, and peace. And in Galatians chapter 5, it reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and gentleness. So men are to lead through prayer and holiness and not through pride or passivity or passion. Men are to lead through prayer and not through those things. And secondly, women are to learn godliness and good works. So Paul then moves to address the the women in the congregation. Look at verse 9. He says, Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, let me say this before we even get into um, the, the scripture. There were some things that were happening in that culture that could give us some insights into why Paul says some of these things, okay? Um, it, 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 there in um, Ephesus, um, there was a particular pagan worship. Um, it involved women in particular ways. It, it had all of those things. And there's a, there's a lot of things that we know now about what surrounds this passage that Paul could have been referring to as he writes to Timothy and addresses women in the church. Is it important? It might be helpful. So let me say this. This is a little Bible study like skill for you. Um, that we can understand the clarity of God's word by what's in God's word. We don't have to do cultural exegesis to understand what's in these pages. Does, is it helpful? Yes, it's helpful. Is it, do we have to have it to, to be conclusive about the clarity of Scripture? No, we don't. So because of that and because of time, I'm not going to bring any of that into this passage. But you, in your study, you know, you, you ought to, to do that as you read these commentaries, individuals who have studied the culture and the time and the history. Much of that is very helpful. It can be insightful, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text. It can't radically alter the meaning of the text by understanding some of those things. We have the word of God, which is preserved. It is sufficient for life and for godliness. So therefore, we're just going to, to work through the text itself. So the word likewise, beginning verse 9, indicates the command is similar um, from the command to the men. So we have something that's similar, and, and it would be a great study for you to even look at this and say, okay, draw the line and put these two passages and say, what are the things that, that are similar? And I think you'll find um, a lot of things that, that women are also to pray. They're also to pray in, in every place. This passage doesn't forbid women to pray. We actually have women in the, the New Testament that are leading out in prayer, in, in worship. And, and so um, it doesn't forbid them to, to do that, that women are to lift up holy hands. So when Paul urges that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving made for all people, he desired for both men and women within the church, within the Christian congregation, um, to pray. So likewise, women are to pray, um, it's that Paul is emphasizing that men are to lead in that. Men are to lead in that. Um, Men are to adorn themselves in prayer, and women also are to adorn themselves with prayer, but specifically godliness and good works. So Paul's instructions for men and women differ in regard to 
how God created them and also their weaknesses and their sins. So men are warned to cease from anger and quarreling and women are warned um, concerning vanity and immodesty. Um, Paul says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Respectable may also be translated suitable or proper apparel. So that, I, I don't think we, I think too much has been made of this, um, this part of this passage. Um, and we can, and so I'm, I'm going to leave it to you, um, men and women, for women that, what does it mean to adorn, to adorn yourself in respectable apparel with modesty? Um, and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness and good works, right? So there's been probably too much, um, too much diversion into women's fashion at this point, right? And we're not going there um, because I'm going to leave it to your good wisdom as to interpret you know, what that looks like um, here. But there is, we have to look at what he is saying, that women are to adorn themselves, right? Um, there is, there's something different. Like I said, as guys, we, we, there, there are guys who think too much of what they wear, and, but not in general, right? This is more of an issue with the ladies that it's about what we wear and what's on the outside. And again, you can look at what's happening in the culture. There were some women who were afraid to actually go to sleep because they had these hairdos um, there in Ephesus that were like, and these dresses that literally would have cost years and years of salary because they were bedazzled. <laughs> like they were, they literally had jewels woven into them. Um, and so there was some of that that was happening there. But I, we don't need, necessarily need to know all of that to really understand what he's saying. Likewise, the women should adorn themselves, right? So it's, it's not, he's saying, look, it's not what you wear. It's the godliness of your character. It's clothe yourself with godliness and good works. It's not a prohibition to good fashion. Right? It's just, we need to exercise wisdom when it comes to that. But he's saying what, what women need to be known for is their godliness and their good works. Their godliness and, and their good works. And, and, and those women are to teach the younger women to, to do the very same thing. You know, it sounds a lot like what Peter wrote again in 1 Peter chapter 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, God, which in God's sight is very precious. And so the instruction here is that, that women are to adorn themselves with godliness, what does it mean for a woman to be godly, to grow in godly character? It ought to be the godly character that a woman is most concerned about, that they're adorning themselves and good works, right? Because that's what comes out of godliness. 
right? The love of God's glory sent the Son to die on the cross so that love would be displayed, right? So out of godliness comes good works that owe themselves to God. That's what women are to be marked by in the household of God. So both men and women are to pray with, within the Christian congregation. Both are to pray, lifting holy hands to the Lord. Both men and women are to live holy lives, be, being mindful of besetting sins and being eager to develop self-control. Neither men or women are to be de- driven by their passions and their sinful flesh because they are in Christ. Um, so how do, how do women do this? There's some instructions. How do women adorn themselves with godliness in good works? Um, it is with the right heart attitude, right? So we saw this in why, when we asked the question, why don't men pray? Why don't men pray? Because it's something that's happening in their heart. Here's a parallel of the likewise um, in this passage, but it's explicit here. It says, verse 11, let women learn quietly with all submissiveness, right? So men are to pray, and men are to pray being what? Submissive to God, right? Women are to learn, and it says that they are to to learn quietly with all submissiveness, and they are to submit themselves to God. This is the change process, Right? If you want to change, you've got to engage in the change process, right? which means the change process is marked by something. You've got to be willing to learn. You've got to be willing to grow, and growth is being submissive. It's doing your homework, right? I mean, you've probably engaged a student or a learner in some way that thought they knew more than you did. That is the most frustrating thing in the world. Right, And so uh, this application is not just for women. It's, it's for us as men as well. We need to learn before God in quietness with all submission. Women here were to learn with all quietness and submission. That word quietness, it doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean silence. Actually, if you go up in the passage, it says that our lives, right? If you go up, you'll see that the same word was used earlier. Um, and says that we are to pray um, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. Does a quiet life mean that you don't talk? It doesn't mean that, right? It, it, it means something different. So the idea of quiet Submissive is so that there's learning that's taking place. Now, it is something that's radical that's happening here in this text. Um, because we, we know this not because of specific archaeology or what was happening at Ephesus or those kinds of things. Um, But we know this because of history in general. We know this because of first century Judaism that men and women didn't learn together. And so now here you have women being elevated and lifted to a particular place and instructions given for the household of God that men and women are now to be integrated in the congregation and they are to, to learn um, God's word together. And so here we see these things happening um, that 
order in God's house. Men are to lead through prayer and holiness. Women are to learn godliness and good works. And then finally, qualified men are to lead by teaching. Qualified men are to lead by teaching. If you want to cross that out, and I put up in the corner here of the box, faith flourishes through obedience, I debated how to title this last point. So I'm giving you both. Because what's actually happening in the passage is um, it's addressing women, but it's telling us, it's telling us a couple of things. But the point is, it's saying that faith flourishes through obedience. But, but what the connection of this passage is to chapter 3, that qualified men are to lead by teaching. There's two things that are happening here. And I didn't know whether to have a fourth point. I didn't know how to do it. So I'm giving you both because both are happening and both are important in this. And we'll see both at the same time. Um, that, and this is where the sufficiency thing comes in. God's setting order to his house, to, the, to how he created. Right now, we have a rebellion against the, the creator God in our world in that we cannot define anymore in the public square what a man and a woman is. We don't know. The Oxford English Dictionary, and if I was a woman, I would be offended, but I'm not, but I am offended for you. They have changed the definition of a woman. What in the world? Did you change in definition? My wife hasn't changed in definition. <laughs> My daughters haven't changed in definition. The women that I know haven't changed in definition. I think I know what a woman is. I haven't figured them out. But I think I know what they are. Right? There's a rebellion in our world against the creator God. Right? And so we look at the scriptures and we say, is it sufficient or are we, we have a choice. Are we going to add to it and we're going to import culture on the word of God? It's either sufficient or it's not sufficient. But the meaning of this passage is very clear and it's not hard to actually get to. Right? So um, God has created order. He's created things in certain ways. And you might say, why? Why has God created this? It's a great question to ask. And it's one that you say, why has God created men like men and women like women? Well, the, the simple answer and the right answer is for his glory. Well, why not some other way? I have no idea. But it's the same way asking, you know, why did Jesus have to go to the cross and not a donkey? Actually, Aquinas, I didn't make that up. Thomas Aquinas asked that question. Why couldn't we save through a donkey dying on the cross? Well, because... It's by God's design. You know, could we have been saved another way? The answer is no. Why? Because this is God's design. And so it's not for us to question the reason why, but to, to, to figure out the glory of the why. What's the glory in this that owes itself to God? And then we are to obey what's here in the passage. So qualified men are to lead through teaching or you can have faith flourishes through obedience. So the positive command here is let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. It's stated negatively. That's why we looked at the men in a negative sense. It's stated negatively and qualified with the words, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain 
quiet. It's important to know what Paul does not say in here. He does not say that a woman is never to teach or never to exercise her spiritual gifts. Right? That's, that's not in view here. Um, Paul is not saying that a woman must remain absolutely quiet. Um, he clearly is addressing authoritative teaching when the church is assembled. Right? He's addressing one thing in this, and that is the preaching of the word of God and holding the office of an elder. That's it. Right? That's it. Everything else he is not speaking to. Right? It is just simply of, of addressing authoritative teaching of the church and holding the office of an elder. And he's going to create that contrast as he looks back at creation in something that a man cannot do, which is having a child. He's addressing roles in this passage. He's getting at uh, the, the passage in um, in First uh, Timothy chapter three, that we ought to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. So this is related to our truth telling in the word world today, yeah, right? So he, let me say this: churches that have imported culture and have gotten this passage wrong, all of them, without exception, are in decline. All of them, without exception, are in decline. Why? Because they lack the truth. And when you let a lie in in one way, when you import a cultural lie in one way, you've now opened the door for that in many ways. And when we can watch Oprah, and that is, you know, that essentially is what is taught on Sunday morning, then why not just watch Oprah, right? We don't necessarily need the truth if the truth is not being taught in church. Okay, so, so he, he's, he's addressing something particular. Um, it doesn't mean that women do not have an important role to play in church. We, we know this from other passages in Scripture. Um, this is why I, f- I fought very hard in my study all week um, because there's so much that could be said. But we could go to Acts chapter 18 where, where Apollos, who was a, a preacher, who had something that was lacking. Um, in Acts 18, you had a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who, who took him in and taught him. And the implication, the, the intonation of the passage is that it was Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife. And so we find that, that interesting um, to see that both Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, were used by God to teach this preacher, Apollos, who was an eloquent man to be competent in the scriptures, to know, to know God's word. Um, when we talk about this, when we say, okay, what's happening here is he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, um, but rather she is to, to remain quiet. Again, it doesn't mean that they're never to teach or never to exercise their gifts. Our culture, our culture scoffs at this. Um, they scoff at the way scripture distinguishes between the genders. Um, so here's the question. Is the church permitted to go with the flow um, of the culture and dismiss this teaching of Paul as something that was patriarchal and first century and were not that is the church permitted to ignore the text uh, claiming that those were just cultural norms in paul's day and we've somehow progressed beyond them you know i I had a friend who believed this there's a book by by a guy named webb and uh he he writes about slaves um 
slaves, um, slaves, women, marriage, and homosexuality. And it is a, a, it is a progressive, what the whole book says, in these certain issues in Scripture remain the same. They remain the same, Old Testament and New Testament. Others have this progressive understanding. And so where Scripture ends, we're just supposed to keep this trajectory going. Well, the problem with that is when the Scripture ends and we're supposed to keep this trajectory going, then who becomes the authority? We do. We become, and now it can go in any direction that it wants to. And that is absolutely patently false and wrong. Um, by the way, this friend is no longer in ministry. He does advise Oprah, though. So I guess he's found his calling, but it's not as a pastor. It's not the, and it's not the word of God. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that we, that we do not dismiss these teachings as old-fashioned or outdated because this is God's design from the beginning. So what do we do with this, this passage? It says here that I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, a, a woman is to learn and grow, in, learn and, and grow um, in, in godliness and good works submitted to God. And there's a, there's a, there is a, an outworking for that in the church. There's, there are many opportunities for that. But what he's saying here is household order. Men are to be elders. Men are to lead the official teaching of the church. Right? That's what we teach here at Northbridge. We teach that because this is God's word. When churches say that's a secondary issue, what they're saying, or that's just an issue that, well, one church can have it this way and another church can have it this way. What they're saying and getting at is the word of God is not sufficient. Now, he gives a reason. Note, note verse 13. For Adam was, first for, was formed first, then Eve. So this is a, a reason clause. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the next section is qualifications for elders. Right. So there is no section in Scripture that you will find of qualifications of an elder, of a pastor, of a bishop, okay, all the same shepherd, all the same terms. You won't find that Old Testament or New Testament where it, there are qualifications for a woman in that role. Now, why? Well, this is, because, this is God's design. I don't know. I, I don't make the rules. I'm just the messenger. This is God's word. Right? That's, that's why. I, I don't know. This is God's design. And so we're to find the glory in it, not bring an import and say, well, does that mean that a woman is less? Well, if you think that, you're not reading your Bible. If you think that a woman is somehow unequal in value or a man is somehow unequal in value to each other, you're not reading your Bible. It's impossible to get that from God's word. They are equal in value, but they are men and they are women and they have particular roles in the church and in the home. That's by God's design. So what is this saying about creation? Well, it's going back to creation. It's going back to creation. He's noting here, for Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. He's noting the, the weakness 
um, of Eve at that point. He's noting the fact that this is rooted in creation. Paul could have chosen any kind of reason, but he picks this one in particular because he's going back to how we are created, how we are created as men and women. In verse 15, it says, and yet she will be saved through childbearing. So, so Paul addresses in Romans in a similar way here, Adam's sin. He addresses Eve's sin here, her weakness, and says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the key. This verse is key to understanding um, what this means. So he says, yet you will be saved. The saved is not, you'll be saved from your sins. That is not what it's, what it's saying. It's saying being saved through the trial. That's, that's, the, that's the point, right? It's ta- he's talking to believers here, right? To say that somehow women are saved through childbearing. It's like, that's ridiculous to read the text that way. He's writing to church. He's writing to believers. He's, he's writing to, to Timothy in particular. This, has, this is talking about women who are already saved, that are already believers. And he's saying that you'll be saved through Right? So there's, there's something through what? Through childbearing. So I'll put these on the screen for you. Go, if you were to go back to Genesis 3.16, it's related to this trial in Genesis 3.16. Says says this, To the woman, Genesis 3.16 says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In your pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." but he shall rule over you. Now, let us not become too familiar with that passage. It seems odd, right? So he says to the woman, he will surely multiply. This is about the curse. Adam and Eve sinned. Mankind has fallen. There was, there was man has to deal with particular issues in sin. Women has to do with particular issues in sin. And note the coupling. What is the trial of women in the world as a result of sin? Well, it's childbearing. There's going to be additional pain in the same way that men were to work before the fall, but yet men's work after the fall is frustrated. It's difficult. There's thorns and thistles. So part of the curse is this pain in childbearing. Now, I believe that certainly is the physical birthing of children, right? And this doesn't seem like this, I, I read this passage, I kind of have to laugh because it's like um, the, the idea of the pain in childbearing and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's, it's not saying like the woman's giving birth and she's saying, what have you done to me? Right? In that moment, like, the, like I can't believe this, right? That, that pain in childbearing. But no, it's saying that a woman's desire is going to be what in the home? There's two trials there. One is in the birthing of children, in the raising of children, because it's difficult to raise children. There's pain there. But also, your desire in that role of child bearing, the raising of children, is going to be what? To confuse your role. That, that's, what, that's what Genesis is saying. Now, this from 2 Timothy 
that you'll be saved through childbearing. The idea is through. And so we look at another passage and we see this very same thing, this idea of saved through. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, um, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right? So the idea of saved through fire right? Save through what? Fire is a trial. It's a difficulty, right? You're going to be saved through this, okay? Paul's getting at this very same thing here. So we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, and then we see that the meaning is clear. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, right? So we see that the salvation there is through what? Obedience, right? It's obedience. It's understanding. It's understanding your role and being obedient to, to not only what God has said, but how God has created you and how God has, has instructed you as God created you. If you continue in faith and love and holiness. What it's saying here is that our faith flourishes through obedience. Listen, this is not just a directive towards women. We know that for the, because of the next chapter, that God calls qualified men to teach, right? That faith flourishes through obedience, right? So our faith will flourish when we believe and obey what God has said. Don't add to it. Right? We are saved because we believe and obey what God has said, that he is a good God, that he has saved us from our sin through Jesus Christ, and then he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so we look at order in the household of faith, right? order in, in the church, the pillar and buttress of truth, and God says, this is how I've designed you, and this is how I've ordered my church, and I've created particular roles. None of those roles by our good creator God diminish who we are. It's only when we live by God's commands. Because he has made, the, made our obedience possible only through the work of Jesus Christ, that we can be ambitious to obey those commands, to live as we are created. See, it, it's in repentance and faith that we truly have options in this world. It's in, through repentance and faith that, that we flourish, that homes flourish, that churches flourish, and as a result, societies flourish. What we see around us, in the world around us, is a landscape that is eroding. And what does this world need? They need this kind of good news. And we need to plant those kinds of seeds, and we need to raise up households of faith, right, that are gonna hold that the soil of our society together with deep roots and leafy branches, right? It's an ecosystem that's held together by the good news of Jesus. He is the creator and he's the sustainer and he's called his church into this world to be the light and to be salt and is the church by God's word that is the stabilizing force in all creation. It is Jesus himself. So our question this morning is, are we gonna believe it? And will we obey it?
We're going to give you a few moments, and you can go to the church app and or northbridge.me, and we're going to give you just a few moments to fill out that response card and consider your response to the Word of God this morning. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, I know that your word has been clear. So wipe away all of my words and may your word remain. And Lord, encourage our hearts. Uh, For some of us, make them alive. For others, remove the sluggishness, the slothfulness, and stir up zeal and ambition to obedience. For some of us, we, um, we have been so marked, maybe even abused in some ways that these words are difficult. Um, but Lord, may we hear your love and your grace. Um, may, you, may we respond to how you have created us. And Lord, we pray that your church, not just Northbridge, but all that preach God's word would flourish. We pray this for the glory of God, and we pray this for the sake of our families and for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.